My name is Aaron Stein, and I am the Chief Content Officer at War on the Rocks. You are listening to The Warcast, the members-only podcast for what you need to know now. Today, I'm talking to Michael Coppola, Chief Policy Officer at the Israel Policy Forum, about the latest events in Israel, where now current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was recently sworn in again as Prime Minister of the country. Mike, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. Let's just start at the beginning. The election was won on November 1st, but obviously now we're into January with government formation. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics that have been going on in between Election Day uh, and Netanyahu being sworn into office and what it all means? So Netanyahu on Election Day emerged in, um, I think, was uh, a surprise move to everybody with a pretty big buffer. The the polls before this election, which was the fifth in uh, three and a half years, indicated that there would maybe be another 60-60 deadlock. The, the Knesset, recall, is 120 seats, um, or that Bibi would just be passed with maybe 61. He ended up with 64 seats divided between his own Likud party, the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and UTJ, and a combination of three small uh, national religious parties, uh, religious Zionism, Otsma Yehudit, which means Jewish power, and Noam. And so uh, those parties together had 64 seats. And so everybody knew that he was going to be able to put a coalition together and become prime minister. What happened between November and last week, though, is that Netanyahu spent a lot of time in negotiations with these partners who had all sorts of demands that really go well beyond things that we've seen in Israeli politics before. Some of these demands required new Knesset legislation that had to be passed first before the government could be formed. And some of these demands really led to uh, a situation that became pretty evident uh, just a couple of weeks later in which Netanyahu's new coalition partners don't trust him at all. Um, and he is beholden to them in a way that he hasn't been in his past terms for, for a variety of reasons. And so he really went down to the end where uh, he was caving on all sorts of things that are unprecedented in Israeli politics. And they weren't willing to actually sign coalition agreements and form a government and get sworn in until they had these things down on paper. Uh, so it took uh, it took a lot longer than people expected. Uh, literally went until the, the very the very end. Uh, Netanyahu had gotten a ten day extension from uh, the Israeli president, and he used all ten of those days. Uh, but we now have this government of sixty four seats, and uh, it is the the most far right and most religious government we've ever seen in Israel. So, so that's the question I wanted to pick up on next. Is that all the reporting about this suggests that the coalition partners, and perhaps you could describe them a little bit more in depth are so far right that it is, you know, I think some of them in the terms is hard right or even radical in terms of their views. Can you talk a little bit about those views uh, and what it may mean for legislation in Israeli society? There are a number of ways in which this breaks down. So to, to look at his coalition partners, as I mentioned before, you have, you have uh, two ultra-Orthodox parties and then you have a bunch of national religious parties. The ultra-Orthodox parties should be familiar to most people. They have been in Israeli politics for a while, and they have been in coalitions for a long time. Uh, they, uh, When Netanyahu was prime minister between 2009 and 2021, they were left out of his coalitions between 2013 and 2015, but otherwise they were part of his government. Uh, and they were not part of the Bennett-Lapid government 
that uh, was in power for the previous year and a half. So their demands are things that are, are pretty uh, standard for them in the context of Israeli politics. Um, they want to see public transportation reduced on uh, on the Sabbath. They want less commerce. They want exemptions from the IDF for uh, ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students. Um, these are all things that, that we're used to seeing. Um, what is a bit different this time is that these parties over time, which used to be really religious parties but didn't have much of a political ideology, have started to become a bit more right-wing. So we're seeing them take some positions that are a bit more hawkish on traditional national issues, not just religious issues, but nothing that's really that far outside of the norm. Uh, where we're really seeing things pushed are with these national religious parties, and that's religious Zionism and uh, Otsma Yehudit. Now, these parties, uh, religious Zionism is um, effectively the successor to a number of uh, right-wing settler parties, and this iteration is both more religious and uh, far more ultra-nationalist than previous iterations of these parties. And then you have Otsma Yehudit, Jewish power, which is a Kahanist party um, formed by the acolytes of Mayor Kahana, who uh, was a Jewish extremist who's, uh, who himself and his party were actually banned from Israeli politics. And later, uh, his party was declared a terrorist organization. His acolytes uh, went and formed this Otsma Yehudit, Jewish power party. And so the guy at the head of it, uh, who's been in the news a lot, uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, is somebody who has eight convictions on his record, one of which is for support of a terrorist organization and racist incitement. And um, he is now, the, uh, as of a couple of days ago, the national security minister in Israel. And so some of the demands that these parties are making um, are extremely far-reaching. Uh, they involve primarily issues in the West Bank, where they want to legalize illegal outposts where they want to apply sovereignty to uh, all the settlements, where they want to annex large portions of the West Bank. Um, they want to abolish the, the military administration there and, uh, and have uh, the Jews who live there be under civil administration while the Palestinians there would still remain stateless and under military rule. Uh, and they also want to change the status quo on the Temple Mount. So on a lot of these issues uh, between Jews and Palestinians, between Jews and Arabs involving territory on the West Bank, we are seeing more and more extremist positions. And a lot of these were reflected in the coalition negotiations and in the coalition agreements, and more importantly, um, in some of the legislation that was passed right before the government was formed that really transformed a number of Israeli cabinet ministries and gave authority to ministers over things that they never had authority over before. How is this going to impact Israeli foreign policy? I'll, I'll pivot next to the U.S., but for right now, let's focus on the Middle East. During the Trump administration, we saw the, the Abraham Accords, and there's continued speculation about extending the Abraham Accords perhaps to other countries, I think the big white whale being Saudi Arabia. Given the trajectory of Israeli politics, given this the dynamics and how they would apply to the Palestinian conflict, where do you see this going? How would this impact Netanyahu's foreign policy in the Middle East? Netanyahu views the Abraham Accords as one of his most significant accomplishments. I think rightly so. He was he was the prime minister in summer 2020 when they came together. And he has been promising over the past couple of months that now that he's back in office, we are going to see the Abraham Accords expand. And he's uh, he's hinted and, and really gone um, in some ways, uh, sort of everything short of 
um, definitively saying that he is going to usher in peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So this is something that that he wants to do. And within Netanyahu circles, and I think within right-wing Israeli circles more generally, there is this notion that whatever happens with the Palestinians, whatever happens on the West Bank, really won't impact things like normalization or any future relationship with Saudi Arabia because the Arab states don't care about the Palestinians and they simply want to reap the benefits of having bilateral relations with Israel. I think that the Abraham Accords demonstrated that that's true up to a point, um, but it doesn't outweigh every consideration under the sun. And we're actually seeing that over the past couple of days, because yesterday, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the head of Otsma Yehudit and the new national security minister, went up to the Temple Mount yesterday morning. He actually did it in a relatively quiet and subdued manner. He went up there at seven in the morning. He only stayed for 13 minutes, uh, didn't do anything to violate what's considered to be the status quo on the Temple Mount uh, in terms of open, openly praying. Um, but it was met with wall-to-wall condemnation from the region, um, not just from Jordan, but also from Egypt, from the UAE, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and tomorrow, the UAE is sponsoring on behalf of the Palestinians and Jordan a Security Council discussion on Israeli violations of the status quo on the Temple Mount. And, you know, this is being done by the UAE, which at the moment is a member of the Security Council. So, you know, we're seeing right away, even in the early days of this government, that there are things that can happen in the West Bank and in Jerusalem with regard to the Palestinians and the Temple Mount uh, that are going to make these relationships within the region more complicated and a lot trickier. And I think that um, Netanyahu is going to have to figure out exactly where the line is. And then once he figures out where the line is, he's going to have to figure out how to stay behind it without having his new coalition partners ditch him and bring down his government. And that brings up a final question, too, particularly about perhaps navigating tricky alliances, is that I think it's no secret is that the Netanyahu Obama relationship was frosty at best, and where the Netanyahu-Trump relationship was far closer. Now, obviously, we have President Biden, who was the vice president during the Obama administration, but also has a long history, uh, both in the Senate and dealing with Israel itself. How would you sort of characterize the Biden-Netanyahu relationship, and what do you think that portends for U.S.-Israel relations more broadly? Their personal relationship, by all accounts, is, is good. They've known each other for decades. Also, I think that Biden, um, you, there's, a, there's a phrase that both Israelis and Americans use, use with regard to politicians, uh, this notion that uh, they feel Israel in their kishkas, meaning they feel it in their gut. And one of the criticisms of President Obama was always that he doesn't feel Israel in his kishkas. Nobody says that about Biden. There's uh, really a uniform view among American Jews, left, right, and center, and among Israelis, left, right, and center that Biden is strongly pro-Israel. He proudly identifies as a Zionist. And so the type of personal relationship and problems that uh, plagued the Obama-Netanyahu coupling, I don't think is going to happen under Biden and Netanyahu, Um, partially because of their decades-long relationship, partially because of the way Biden is is very obviously uh, pro-Israel by by any definition. But that doesn't mean that policy problems aren't going to creep in. Uh, Biden is not somebody who I think wants to be fighting with Netanyahu uh, over Israeli-Palestinian policy. He's not going to be imposing any type of peace process or American expectations about negotiations. He doesn't want to be nitpicking over maps of the West Bank and every single settlement announcement. But if 
because of things that happen on the Temple Mount or because of things that happen in the West Bank, you see rockets coming from Gaza or uh, even more violence coming from the West Bank. And I should note that uh, this year was the most violent in the West Bank for both Palestinians and Israelis in terms of both attacks and deaths on both sides since the Second Intifada. Um, if you see that situation really deteriorate, if you see the Palestinian Authority, um, which is already at the brink, collapse over Israeli expansive policies in the West Bank, that's going to force the United States to jump in. It's going to force the United States to respond in some way. And that's the kind of thing that has the potential to derail the Biden-Netanyahu relationship, even on an issue that Biden does not want to be actively involved in. Well, that we're going to have to leave it there, Mike. Thanks for joining me at relatively short notice. And thank you for uh, for listening, everybody.